0: Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts.
1: Do you like to listen? Hello from England. This is Bob and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This episode and the whole show are entirely listener supported and without your support the creators wouldn't be able to make this fantastic show. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer check out the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com. So, on behalf of Diane and Denise, I can say thanks for listening, and if you just started listening, welcome. On a misty night, two lovely ladies came up with an idea to research and tell the world about history and the things that go bump in the night. This is History Goes Bump.
0: Hello you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 179th episode of the History Ghostbump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host Diane. And this is Denise. Today Denise on this episode we're going back to school. What if I don't wanna? Well you're gonna. (laughs) We're going to the University of California at Berkeley and this was suggested and we had research help from our listener Kat. This university has a lot of innovation that has taken place there, a lot of protests, and a lot of hauntings happen to be happening there as well. So, we're looking forward to sharing the history and hauntings with you of UC Berkeley. Also, on this episode, we are going to have the 10th installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular Crew Brienne. Hey, Brienne. Gina. Hello, Gina. Amber. Hi, Amber. Vicky with an eye. Hello, Vicky with an eye. Pratvia. Hey, Pratvia. Julia. Hello, Julia. Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Jeffrey. Hey, Jeffrey. And Rosie. Hello, Rosie. And now our moment in oddity.
2: And this moment in oddity was suggested by Teresa Slavin. Centralia was once a small coal-mining town found in Pennsylvania. Today, it is a wasteland that is nearly a ghost town with less than a dozen residents. What chased these people away is not a mystery, but it is a strange thing. In 1962, a heap of trash was set ablaze in an abandoned mine pit. This was the town's landfill and there had not been a problem with this practice but on this particular day a vein of anthracite coal was exposed and the fire ignited that vein. The surface flames were quickly extinguished but unfortunately this is a vein that crawled its way through the earth and the firefighters were unaware that the fire continued to burn underground. The fire burned into the coal mines and holes were drilled into the ground to figure out where the fire was burning and to determine temperature. These holes provided oxygen And as you can imagine, the fire was fueled further. For years, residents and others tried different methods to put out the fire. They flushed the mines with water and excavated as much coal as they could. The fire continued for 20 years and then something else started to happen. The earth started opening up with sinkholes. One young boy was almost killed. Experts believe that the only way to fix the issue would be a massive trenching operation that would cost $660 million. So the government opted to relocate the residents. The fire continues to burn under 400 acres of surface area and it continues to grow. Estimates claim that it could burn for 250 years. The town is a virtual ghost town that people are detoured around and modern maps do not include the town anymore. The fact that a city was destroyed by a fire that has continued to burn for decades below the earth certainly is odd. Turn out the
1: lights. The party's just getting started.
2: And now, This Month in History.
0: In the month of January on the 7th, in 1610, Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei discovered four moons orbiting the planet Jupiter using a telescope he had made himself. On first observation, he thought that the planets were just a group of stars. After he watched the star cluster for a while, he realized that they were moving in a regular pattern, and that movement was against the laws of nature as Galileo understood them at the time. The direction was wrong as far as he was concerned. After a few weeks, he surmised that these objects were not stars, but moons that were in orbit with Jupiter. This discovery was further evidence of the Copernican theory on the universe, which stated that everything in the universe did not orbit the Earth. This would launch the world into modern astronomy. Today, we know Jupiter's satellites as Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, and they are referred to as the Galilean moons in honor of their discoverer.
2: The University of California Berkeley is a research university at its heart. Many discoveries and innovations have their origins at this university. From earthquake detection devices, to nutrition, to deep sea diving chemicals to prevent the bends, to the atomic bond, to biotech and biofuels, all of these inventions were developed at UC Berkeley. The university was founded back in the 1800s and has played witness to decades of history. It is not only one of the top schools in America, but in the world. The university has known its share of controversy, and although it, the university most certainly does not embrace this, it is quite haunted as well. Join us as we discuss the history and hauntings of UC Berkeley.
0: The city of Berkeley was the territory of the Chochenyo Huchian band of the Olone people originally, and I'm sure I butchered all those names. They left behind shell mounds and pits and rock formations. They lived mostly along the shoreline of San Francisco Bay at the mouth of Strawberry Creek. The first Europeans to arrive and settle came with the De Anza Expedition in 1776. This expedition led to the founding of the Spanish Presidio of San Francisco at the entrance to San Francisco Bay. One of the soldiers at the Presidio was Luis Peralta. The King of Spain granted him a vast stretch of land on the east shore of San Francisco Bay for a ranch much of which is today's city of Berkeley. The city is named after the 18th century Anglo-Irish bishop and philosopher, George Berkeley.
2: It's kind of cool that they had the shell mounds there in San Francisco Bay as well, because we have quite a few of those here in Florida, so I'd never really heard of them until we started seeing them here.
0: Yeah, it was basically their trash piles, and now they're archaeological finds, so it makes you wonder... Denise, about 150, 200 years from now, are people going to be digging through our trash and going, look, it's a heap of diapers and plastic trash bags. And I I can only imagine what our, quote unquote, shell mounds are going to be for the future people to discover. Yep, you never know.
2: (laughs) The California gold rush began in 1848 and brought hundreds of thousands of people to California. Henry Durant was born in Massachusetts and studied for the ministry at Yale College. He became an ordained minister, but also a headmaster. He eventually came to Oakland, California, and in 1853, he founded the Contra Costa Academy, a private school for boys. Two years later, the school was chartered as the College of California. Another school, known as the Agricultural, Mining, and Mechanical Arts College, merged with the College of California in 1868, and the University of California was founded. Durant was elected the first president of the University of California. The university's beginnings were modest to say the least. Initially, there were only 10 faculty members and 40 students.
0: That would be nice because I remember some of the classes that I attended at Colorado State University. We'd have 300, 400 people in there. So imagine only 40 students in the whole school. That would make it nice for learning. I learn much better with a smaller group than a huge group. I guess it's easier to take a nap during class if you have that many people, you know, 300. By 1873, the university had 200 students, and there was a need to move to another campus at this time. They moved to a new campus in Berkeley on land adjoining Strawberry Creek. In 1882, UC Berkeley's first sports team was established on campus. And Denise, can you guess what sport would be the first one to come to this university?
2: Of course, you would want to say baseball since that's America's pastime, and then you'd maybe go football, but nope, it was neither of those two. Why don't you tell them what it was, Diane?
0: It was rugby. That just blew my mind. I'm like, the first sports team was a rugby team. Amazing here in America. Beginning in 1891, Phoebe Apperson Hearst of that Hearst family, took the university under her wing and started funding a number of programs and buildings. Phoebe had married George Hurst, who also happened to be her distant cousin. Annie was 22 years older than her. I think he was 41 and she was 19 when they got married. She gave birth to their only son, who we all know as William Randolph Hurst. And yes, he is the one who built Hurst Castle, which we have heard also is haunted. But I don't find a whole lot of information out there on it, so we haven't included it on our list. So if anybody hears a lot of hauntings going on at the Hurst Castle, let me know. I've just heard it in relation to some true crime stuff. William Randolph Hearst was born in 1863. Phoebe also sponsored an international competition in Antwerp, Belgium in 1898 for a campus master plan. So I thought it was interesting. They wanted to build a campus here and they go to Antwerp, Belgium to have this international competition.
2: And the funny thing is, every time I hear Antwerp, I think of those commercials for which diamond company was it? The Shane Company? Tom Shane, yeah, <laughs> Shane Company. <laughs> the Shane Company in Colorado <laughs> who followed us to Florida, but
0: because he always talked about Antwerp. So it, Yes, that's true. French architect Emile Bernard submitted the winning design, which was called Roma. The
2: backstory here is an interesting one about two powerful and rich families in the Bay Area competing against each other. The Stanford family had founded Stanford University, and the Hearst family responded by adopting the fledgling University of California and guided it to becoming a world-class institute. It was the classic one-upmanship move. Emil Bernard did not like the culture of San Francisco, and he refused to revise his plan to fit the university, so he was replaced by fourth place winner John Galen Howard. Howard became UC Berkeley's resident campus architect. He built in the Beaux arts classical style. Characteristics included flat roofs, statuary and sculptures, arched windows and doors,
0: and decorative garlands, balustrades, and pilasters. I'm sure our listeners who reside in San Francisco, and we know there are many of you, as a matter of fact, Denise, we probably have some people are going, God, they do so many sites in California. It seems a little uneven. It's because our listenership is that uneven. Do you know, Denise, that over half of our listenership in America all comes from California?
2: I had no idea, but I do know that we have five ambassadors in California, four in just the Northern California area alone.
0: The other day I was looking through our stats because I just like to check it out every so often and geographically see who's listening in what countries. And I thought, you know, I don't really look at America and see what the breakdown is there. And when I looked, California was number one and it had about 50% of the listenership there.
2: So I'm guessing we should probably really seriously be starting to consider a trip out to Cali. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and so that's why we have more sites in California because we have more listeners who suggest more places. So there you go. But I'm sure a lot of them probably do not like the fact that this French architect did not want to come and help design the university campus because he didn't like the culture there. (laughs) I'm not sure exactly what culture he was talking about. He doesn't like chocolate. I don't know. It was the late 1800s. So, I mean, it's not like hippie power was going on or anything back then. So I'm not sure what he was, you know, upset about. You never know. It could have been like Victorian hippies. I think it was just a stuck-up French guy, but there you go. There you go. Howard designed much of the classic historic buildings on campus, and most of them are listed on the National Register of Historic Places. These included the Hearst Greek Theater, the Hearst Memorial Mining Building. Do you see a theme going here, Denise, with the (laughs) Hearst? <laughs> Doe Memorial Library, California Hall, Wheeler Hall, Lacanti Hall, Gilman Hall, Haviland Hall, Wellman Hall. And now we have a string going on with the Hall family. Sather Gate. <laughs> Did he stop? Just stop. Sather <laughs> Gate, the Sather Tower. I hope that's how you say it. It's either Sather or Sather. I'm not sure. Now, this tower was inspired by St. Mark's Campanile in Venice. Which but, we know very well.
2: Yes. Not only do we see the miniature replica every, almost every week when we go to Epcot, but we also saw the real one twice,
0: twice. in yeah. Venice. And we actually went up in it the second time. Northgate Hall, Dwinnell Annex, and Stevens Hall. In 1919, a southern branch of the University of California was opened in Los Angeles, which began the expansion of the university in a statewide system that now includes 10 campuses across California. So when you say the University of California, that's why you have to specify what city, because there are so many of them. I believe my dad went to the one in Irvine.
2: Berkeley faculty started something new on the campus in the 1920s by establishing an academic senate, which gave them an unprecedented role in the governance of Berkeley's campus. It was described as a faculty revolt, but it is a tradition that has kept the faculty independent and outspoken. The 1930s was another time of diversity and expansion with the opening of the International House. John D. Rockefeller Jr. funded the construction, and soon thereafter, the University of California enrolled nearly 10% of all international students in the United States. This was the first co-educational residence west of the Mississippi and housed men, women, foreigners, blacks and whites under one roof. It was
0: not a popular move and many objected. By 1942, the American Council on Education ranked UC Berkeley second only to Harvard University in the number of distinguished departments. That's pretty big. Wow. The innovation coming out of UC Berkeley was amazing and it still continues to this day. A device to create cleaner smokestack emissions that is still used today was developed in 1907. Vitamin E was discovered in 1922. Berkeley chemist Jolie Hildebrand formulated a mixture of helium and oxygen for deep-sea diving that would enable divers to explore deeper than ever before without experiencing the bends in 1924. Using iodine to diagnose and treat hyperthyroidism was developed here as well. Denise, that pertains to me because I was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism almost... I don't know, 15 years ago, and they use radioactive iodine to treat that and basically kill my thyroid. Yep, so
2: Diane glowed for a bit.
0: <laughs> for three days, Denise said I was radioactive.
2: Well, it was fun, actually. Little side note, rabbit hole or whatever, is that a lot of our friends instead of calling and saying, how's Diane doing? Is she okay? They're like, yeah, I saw a glow up north and thought I'd check in on Diane. And they were singing songs to her, like the song Radioactive. And it, so they were very compassionate of her.
0: <laughs> Nutrition science got its start here. And speaking of food, little fun fact, fruit cocktail was created at UC Berkeley by William Cress. So I, I had no idea, Denise, that fruit cocktail ad- actually had to be created. And I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if it was like uh, Reese's. <laughs> peanut butter cup or somebody was walking down
2: with a marachino <laughs> cherry and somebody else with some pears and peaches and bam they all hit each other and there you had it fruit cocktail
0: and somehow William <laughs> Crest was right in the middle of it and said hey this tastes kind of good let's market it <laughs> <laughs> there was also the flu vaccine plutonium was produced here for the first time the atomic bomb was developed wetsuits were invented the first cancer-causing gene was discovered biofuels were developed and the list goes on and on
2: Eventually, Berkeley would also become a scene for campus protests against the Vietnam War, but the military once had a huge influence at the university. Military training was compulsory for male undergraduates, and Berkeley housed an armory for that purpose. The ROTC program was established in 1917, and the School of Military Aeronautics trained future pilots that included Jimmy Doolittle.
0: I thought that was a really cool, fun fact. I mean, he headed up the Doolittle Raid, so that was neat.
2: Yes, very, very cool. In 1926, future Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz established the 1st Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps unit
0: at Berkeley. The military
2: increased its presence on campus during World War II.
0: During the McCarthy era in 1949, the Board of Regents adopted an anti-communist loyalty oath. They required that all the faculty and student employees declare in writing that they were not members of the Communist Party. Many of the faculty formed a resistance movement and they were dismissed. The regents eventually rescinded the oath and the California Supreme Court sided with those employees who refused to sign. They were reinstated with back pay. In 1952, the University of California became an entity separate from the Berkeley campus. Each University of California campus was given autonomy and its own chancellor. Then-President Sproul assumed presidency of the entire University of California system, and Clark Kerr became the first chancellor of UC Berkeley. While the
2: university has been known for its innovations and protests, many may not know that the university harbors many spirits. Several locations are haunted. The first is the faculty club. These were the dorms that housed the faculty when the university first opened. The dorm is now an on-campus hotel. One of the professors, Henry Moore Stevens, lived at the faculty club for 20 years until his death in 1919. Supposedly, he still haunts his room because he loved the university so much. Guests report that things had been moved to a different place where they had not had them before while they were staying in that room. His apparition has been seen sitting in his favorite chair and reciting poetry. Cold spots have been felt and people have seen indentations on the bed by something unseen. There might be more than just a love of the school here. Stephen's life work was collecting more than 800 individual accounts of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. He was going to create a complete archive and give it to the Bancroft Library. He died before that happened and today his work has been lost. Could this be why he is still around in the afterlife? Maybe he feels that that work that he started is not finished, or he may be upset that it got lost.
0: The Daily Cal reported, In 1974, the Berkeley Daily Gazette ran an article in which Noriyuki Tokuda, a visiting Japanese scholar, reported seeing Stephen's ghost. After waking from a nap, Tokuda saw a well-dressed gentleman sitting in the chair opposite him. Then, much to Tokuda's surprise, the man flew across the room and disappeared. The Gazette reported Takuda as saying, I opened my eyes then and I saw a funny picture. Two heads with a body passing out of my sight and disappearing. Later, when shown a photograph of Stevens, Takuda confirmed a striking resemblance. Psychic Charles Pedden claims that the captain of the 1920s football team is the one haunting the faculty club. He died of pneumonia, apparently. Pedden wrote of his encounter with this ghost, In a matter of moments, I felt the energy in the room shift and I felt the presence of a spirit from the other side. After speaking with him for a moment, I determined that they were connected with the 1920 football team. I thought that it was most likely the captain of the team. He informed us that he had passed due to pneumonia and then he spoke about the football team of this time period and how they were a bunch of sissies having to wear all the extra protective gear and face masks on the helmets. Even though he ripped the team a bit, he ended up the interview with a hearty Go Bears. So I thought this was kind of funny, Denise, that supposedly this ghost from the 1920s came back and is laughing at the modern day football players saying, oh, look at those sissies having to wear all that stuff.
2: Yeah. So he'd be really shocked if they just to know that they just keep adding more.
0: Well, not only that, but they are now so protective of football players heads because we have come to find that those concussions cause them a lot of brain damage that they suffer later in life from. Croper Hall
2: houses the Anthropology Department. We can already imagine that this place would have some weird stuff going on just based on the types of artifacts housed in the building. The Hearst Museum of Anthropology is located here as well. Kat had told us, This was a story from one of my friends, and this involves her professor. While she was taking an anthro class, the class had a chance to go into the basement level of the Anthro Museum, which is normally off-limits to students who aren't working there. Before the professor went down the stairs, she was apparently praying this weird spell. One of the students asked her why, and she replied, Oh, I was pushed down the stairs when I was alone. When I spoke with a Native American elder, he told me to wear this necklace and to say this prayer. It is to appease the spirits of Native Americans that are attached to the artifacts here. One of Kat's friends had a friend that worked in the museum, and she claimed that she saw dark shadows in the corners of the basement lurking, and shifting around and felt cold spots
0: when she was working there alone. I love how she puts it. The teacher said, oh, I was pushed down the stairs when I was alone. (laughs) Okay, if that had happened to me, I would never go down there again. Number one, (laughs) but oh, yeah, there was this time I was, you know, pushed down the stairs. It was a little frightening. Barrington Hall is privately operated student housing, but initially it was a student housing co-op when it opened in 1935. During the 60s, it got a reputation as a drug den and eventually riots in regards to the building caused it to shut down in September of 1990. It was reopened as the privately owned student housing and residents claim that the building is haunted. Some claim that there's a spirit of a student who hanged himself in the hall, now haunting it. A weird shadow figure has been seen climbing the stairs up to the third floor. This figure enters each room and stares for a bit as though checking on the students, and I'm not sure how they can tell a shadow is staring, but maybe it's just because it keeps looking in the same direction. This has led to the theory that the spirit belongs to a former third-floor resident. During the riots of 1990, Juan Mendoza, a 20-year-old student and resident of Barrington Hall, fell off the roof of the building and sadly died. Could he be one of the spirits as well?
2: Evans Hall is the math and stat department building and it is one of the tallest on campus. A junior majoring in math had a very low GPA. This can be a common occurrence at Berkeley because of grade deflation. Kat had shared that most of the kids who go to UC Berkeley were valedictorians or top of their classes in high school, and the transition into Berkeley academics can be tough. It was for this kid, and he ended up committing suicide over the low GPA. When you are studying math on the basement floor of Evans Hall alone in one of the classrooms and you get a problem wrong, you will hear an insult that will tell you that you got the answer wrong and it will tell you the correct answer. Of course, when the student turns around to thank them or insult them back,
0: no one is there. The Hearst Gym is a location where is felt weird and uneasy. The reason could be that in the 1960s, the remains of about 12,000 Native Americans were dug up on campus and stored in Hearst Gym under the swimming pool. The basement apparently has cabinets and drawers full of these Native American bones. The building has haunting experiences that range from flickering lights, to feelings of unease, to strange tapping noises. The university has tried to return the bones to their tribes of origin, but the process has been slow and arduous, and it is felt that the spirits of the Natives that are restless will be sticking around until they are at rest.
2: Then there is Sather Tower, which resembles the
0: campanile in Venice.
2: This is the most famous structure on campus, and it has been a spot for suicide, at least until the anti-suicide bars were put up. Inside the tower are 61 bells that make up a full concert carillon with bells ranging in size from 19 pounds to a 10,500-pound one called the Great Bear Bell. The Great Bear Bell has carvings of bears as well as the constellation of Ursa Major. It is rung once an hour. Sather Tower is the third tallest bell and clock tower in the world, standing at 307 feet. It was built in 1914 and opened in 1917. The observation deck at the top is where two people committed suicide by jumping. Richard Saffir was the first to jump in 1958 He was a retired attorney who had relocated from chicago instead of going to his psychiatry appointment he climbed the tower and leapt to his death
0: the other was a man named john patterson who was a 19 year old sophomore at the university he jumped in 1961 it is patterson's ghost that people claim haunts the tower his apparition has been seen in the tower and around the grounds In fact, a legend claims that a photographer was taking a picture of the lawn and captured a ghostly hand reaching out of the ground. Yikes. Very yikes.
2: Are the spirits of former students and professors still roving the halls and campus of UC Berkeley? Is UC Berkeley haunted? That is for you to decide.
0: I don't know. There's a lot of ghosts going on around, a lot of ghostly activity going on around there, it sounds like to me. It is definitely sounds like that. Yeah, when Cat was there, she the most she felt was just a little bit of weirdness and unease when she was in certain places, but she didn't have any things that she would call a direct haunting experience herself, but she had plenty of friends who had. On our next episode, this one's going to come up a little bit sooner because it has a certain date to go with it, which is February 2nd. Now, most of you are probably going, "They're going to do a haunted groundhog show."
2: Yes, about the vicious groundhog that comes out to predict the weather. (laughs) (laughs) ha!
0: Speaking of shadow figures, I guess the shadow of the groundhog would be kind of a shadow figure. For our pagan listeners, you probably know that February 2nd marks an important holiday for you guys. It was one that Denise and I had never heard about. One of our listeners named Roxy had shared with us that she really enjoyed our Witches in America episode and had asked if we'd ever thought of doing a particular show on some of the pagan holidays. And I said, no, we don't really know that much about them. So she is joining us on our next episode to share with us the history and legends and things that go with the holiday in bulk. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you guys on our next episode. And now we have the 10th installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition, The Cowardly Ghost Hunters.
1: Welcome to Spectral Edition, I'm Tim Prossel. You know, the name of my website is called The Merry Ghost Hunter, so naturally I become very interested when I come across a ghost report that involves exactly that, ghost hunters. I've got an article here that shows that maybe not everybody is really cut out for that particular job. It was published in the San Francisco Call on November 26th of 1895, and the headline sort of gives it away. It's Scared by the Ghosts. Four bright youths who went to investigate fled from phantoms. Strange sights and sounds seen and heard at the witching hour in a deserted house. Hazleton, Pennsylvania, November 25th. Many persons here are terribly worked up over the alleged spiritual manifestation said to have been nightly observed in a house on Alter Street. The house was owned by Thomas Wallace and is a magnificent structure built for two families. John Brizzy occupied one side of it and J.H. Bachman the other. It is now vacant because the tenants were afraid of the ghosts. Gruesome stories have been afloat concerning the house since it was built three years ago. Many tenants have lived in it, but all have left after a few weeks' experience. What Mr. Brizzy says of it is confirmed by his neighbors, Mr. Bachman and family, and Brizzy only lived in it for two weeks. He says the floors and walls were nightly wrapped. Clocks ticked off the seconds, bells clanged, furniture was moved by invisible hands, and chinaware and crockery were apparently thrown about promiscuously. These stories came to the ears of the proprietor with such frequency that he hired a number of young men to investigate the case. Arthur Bale, Alfred Walsh, Samuel Buck, and Walter Douglas undertook the work last night. Ball, it is said, was startled at midnight by a sudden electrical twitch. His flesh began to creep, and before him appeared a specter. His companions are alleged to have discovered strange phantoms moving about the room, and instantly there was a simultaneous rush for the door. The ghost-catchers, in their haste to get out, forgot their weapons. The house is for sale at a reduced price. None of the four brave men will ever go ghost-catching again. Well, I guess the moral of that story is, if you're going to hire a team of ghost hunters, make sure they have some credentials and some previous experience. I'm Tim Prossel, and you've been listening to Spectral Edition. I have close to 300 of these ghost reports, and I post one each Wednesday on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter. While you're there, you can do a little bit of hunting yourself, and probably pretty easily find previously released audio versions of Spectral Edition. Once again, it's called The Merry Ghost Hunter, and I hope you stop by.
0: Thanks for that, Tim. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website, historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They
2: can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com.
0: So what did you think of Bob's intro for us? I thought it was amazing. That was his daughter. I hope it's Tally, I believe is her nickname. She's about eight years old. And that was all her own thing at the end there, folks. She came up with that all on her own. I thought it was very cute.
2: Yes, I've really been enjoying what our listeners have been coming up with for the executive producer bumpers. They've been really, really a lot of fun to listen to and to have them sent in. So keep them coming.
0: Yes. And uh, we've just been having a great time with those. So yeah, if you haven't done one and you want to, and you're an executive producer, please feel free. And it doesn't have to be as you've heard. People do all different kinds of things. It's whatever you want to do. And you just send it to us. We clean up everything, make it sound good. Uh, On uh, Rhonda's, I added those thundering sound effects. So we we can do fun things with it. So just let us know if you want to be a part of that.
2: We received an email from Tyler. Hello, you spooktacular ladies. My boyfriend, Jeffrey, and I wanted to reach out and express how much we love your show. We drove out to Denver last week from St. Louis and discovered your show by mistake, and I have never been happier. We listened to over 20 hours of your show on our drive out and back. Jeffrey shares your love for anything Disney and especially the Haunted Mansion. We followed on Instagram and were floored when you followed us back. Your voices are so comforting and both of you are so lovely and kind. You made our drive so much more enjoyable and we've been consistently listening while in the car for any extended period of time. Being from St. Louis, we loved the Limp Mansion episode and other sites we have visited. We are playing catch up now since we started so late. So much fun and educational. Thank you so much for all the time and effort you both put in. Sincerely, Tyler and Jeffrey.
0: And they joined the spectacular crew too, so that was very nice. Thank you guys.
2: Yes, and we did um, let them know, anybody in that area, go to the Haunted America conference because we will be very, very close to St. Louis.
0: And I had told them that I know that drive very well, only I used to do it the other way. We'd go from Denver to St. Louis and then, of course, St. Louis back to Denver for Christmas every year almost when I was a teenager. We heard from Amy over on Instagram. Hi, wonderful ladies. I was just listening to the Pluckley Village episode on iHeartRadio. I started with the oldest and working my way to the newest. I truly enjoy listening to you while I work. I've listened to a ton of similar podcasts and there are none as pleasant as yours. I've learned so much and certainly remain entertained. I try to limit the amount of episodes per day so I don't run out. I feel at home listening to you. Thank you for finding the perfect balance of education and fun. So I said, we're kind of like a fine wine. You just want to sip us. (laughs) (laughs) so thank you for that message amy and ethan wrote us on instagram hey ladies just wondering if you're all going to do any more texas stories i have a couple in mind like la lechuza it's an old mexican folklore tale here in south texas there's been multiple sightings here just the other night me and my girlfriend were walking our dogs and out of nowhere we heard whistling we didn't know where it was coming from shortly after that we heard an owl if you're not familiar with the story the lechuza is a half woman half owl it was really creepy (laughs) You know, I think there's no more beautiful sound than hearing the owls, but it is also a very creepy sound. So it's like beautiful, creepy.
2: Yeah, it's it's a haunting sound for sure.
0: Now, when I'm outside with Tiana, it's a terrifying sound and I want to get her inside as quick as possible because I know those owls can pick her up. Exactly. Although for people who've heard Tiana, you know, she could probably tear the crap out of an owl. But I don't
2: want to risk it because those razor sharp talons would not be good.
0: Then we just have some reviews here to share with you. We have one from iTunes, and I know I'm going to butcher this name, Jesser Kihai Porsu, five stars. First, I'd like to shout out to a fellow Utahan. Denise and Diane are an old married couple. <laughs> great. We're an old married couple, Denise. You're old. Well, we are an old married couple, so I guess the truth, it's the truth. The truth sometimes stings just a little bit. <laughs> Who do well-researched reports of places that are presumed to be haunted. These ladies are so sweet. It's like they welcome you to into their house for iced tea and cookies while talking about ghosts. Keep up the great work, ladies, and look out for those old married couples that invite you in for cookies. We could be trouble.
2: We most likely are trouble. But thank you for the review.
0: Denise, we have listeners over at Stitcher as well. I don't go over there very often to look for reviews because they usually come few and far between. But I went over the other day and lo and behold, there were two of them sitting there. First one is from Mrs. Hopkins 73. Five stars. Loving it so far. I've been listening from Spreaker app on my phone. So I had to try and add a review on Stitcher. Hopefully it works. I've been binge listening and am up to episode 47. I've shared with some other paranormal lovers in my family. I don't know if you've visited Yuma, Arizona yet, but if you two ever come through, it would be so cool. You both could probably check out Yuma Territorial Prison or other haunted places in downtown Yuma. We have been to Arizona in the past when we lived out west, but we have never been to Yuma. So another one to add to our list. And Grandpa Bob, five stars. It is scary how great this podcast is. This podcast is one of the most entertaining podcasts I've ever listened to. It is very well-written, well-presented, intelligent, and non-commercial. These presenters provide the best ear candy I've heard in a long time. Remember, in the middle of anyone's heart is an ear, and I'm glad that this podcast is in both my heart and ear. Keep up the great podcasting and make 2017 a year to remember. Well, thank you so much for that. That's very sweet. I love that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Marianne Skybenis, and I hope I said that right, Brianne Barr, or Barry, I'm butchering these names, I'm sorry, Gwen Cohen-Brown, Tyler Can, and Aaron Byrne. Thanks.
1: Have a spooky experience
2: that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show?
0: Share it with us
2: at historygoesbump at gmail.com.